All right, if you will, go ahead and grab a Bible and open up to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We have covered a great bit of detail um, looking at the final days of Jesus' life and ministry um, over the last couple months. So um, for those of you who don't know, we've been working through the Gospel of John um, on and off for quite some time. And starting in January, we began looking at what is called the Farewell Discourse, um, really the last few days of Jesus' life and ministry. And it has led us completely to the, the cross, the crucifixion that we celebrated and, and worshipped around on Friday night with Good Friday. And here we are at the resurrection of Jesus on, in John 20. Friday was the culmination of everything that we had been looking forward to. As Jesus had set his face towards Calvary. And in the cross of Jesus, in, in his death, we know that he appeased the wrath of God, that is the just punishment of God, meant for sin, and in so doing, he defeated death forever. Romans 3 declares that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 says, and the wages of that sin is death. All of history had been pointing and promising a Messiah. Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life, a sinless life. And he gives his life on a criminal's cross to set us free from the bondage of sin. And Friday night, we spent quite a deal of time looking at that. Remembering the death of Jesus. But after his death, he was taken down and he was taken and put in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And as we pointed out Friday, the remarkable thing about that is these were two secret disciples of Jesus. Because of their positions, because of their power, because of their um, place in society, they were, they, they were followers of Jesus, but they were afraid to make it known that they were followers of Jesus. But in the death of Jesus, their faith was built up. And they pledged their allegiance to Christ, and they took His body and they laid it in a tomb, and they prepared the burial. They wrapped him in the cloth, the linen. They covered him with probably upwards of close to 100 pounds of spices and ointments to preserve the body. In the Jewish tradition, they did not embalm. They, they simply covered with those materials. And three days later... Early Sunday morning, as the scripture shows, there were a group of ladies who made their way to the tomb to continue in that process of preservation. And what we see is the great mourning that they are feeling will soon give way to great fear and panic. But, isn't, isn't that a beautiful word in scripture? That fear, that panic, that mourning will quickly be replaced with assurance and joy. 
As we work through John chapter 20 this morning, this is what I want us to see. That the tomb is empty. That Jesus is alive. And faith is made sure so we can live a life in His name. I want to pray for us and we will begin to unpack the truth that Jesus is alive. Our Father, as we now open your word together, we ask that you speak through the working of your Holy Spirit and the words of your scripture. That you would make us aware of the realities of Easter. That you would make us aware that this is not some story. It's not some fairy tale. It's not some fable. That this is reality. That you, in the form of Jesus, came down to a broken, sinful, marred creation. That you lived That you died and that you rose again to defeat sin and death forever. And as we gaze deeply at your word this morning, let us see Jesus. Let us see Jesus high and lifted up. And in our seeing, may our lives be radically transformed by the good news that Jesus is alive. Father, we gather today to proclaim a truth that no other faith can proclaim. To declare good news that no one else can declare. And to be assured as no one outside of Christ can be assured. So today as we approach your text, take all of the distractions of life, the busyness of Easter, the lunches we've got to go to, the the family gatherings we need to attend, just let us just sit all of those things aside. So that we can fix our eyes on Jesus. And as we hear the good news. May you change us. I know Father that there are those here today that may not know you. That have never trusted in the good news of Jesus. That he and he alone can save us from our sin. Today, God, I pray that you will awaken their hearts to the truth of who you are. God, I know that there are many of us here who are struggling to follow you. Whatever the circumstances in our life, we're just, we're having trouble following. May you encourage us with the promise of your word today. Remind us that we have been set apart by God, that we are now your people. To be proclaimers of your excellency. 
to shine forth the light of your glory. God, I know that there are those here who are doubting. Maybe we came because it's Easter and that's what we do. But we're just not quite sure of this whole Jesus thing. This whole death and resurrection deal. As you alleviated the doubt of Thomas, may you alleviate that doubt today. God, may you be with me as I preach your word. May you speak through the working of your spirit through my lips. As the great English pastor Charles Spurgeon used to say as he would approach his pulpit, with every step he took, I need the Holy Spirit. God, may you touch my voice this morning as it wavers. But more than anything, God, may you be glorified in the worship of your son Jesus through the preaching and the responding of your word. In Christ's most glorious name we pray. Amen. As we begin to look at John chapter 20, the very first thing we see is that the tomb is empty. If you will, turn your attention to verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The tomb is empty. Early Sunday morning. These ladies are making their way to the tomb again as we touched on earlier. And as they make their way, they realize the stone had been removed. And they began to be filled with fear and panic. Maybe Joseph laid him somewhere different. Maybe he moved him. Maybe he was stolen. The body was stolen by the people who hated him so. And as this fear and panic begin to well up within them, they take off running and they go to tell Peter and John. And as they get there, they begin to tell this news. And Peter and John, also startled and and kind of uncertain by this news, take off running towards the tomb themselves. And as they're running, John apparently outpaces Peter. And he gets there and he stands just gazing at this removed stone, this opening. 
Yet Peter, when he arrives, does what Peter does, and he immediately just dives right in. He goes straight in to see what's taking place. And what he sees are the burial cloths of Christ laying there, folded. But what he didn't see was a body. Now, I want us to notice what John's response was. So, just a little backstory. What we see constantly in the Gospel of John when we see a reference to the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's, it's a reference to John. So, in case you're wondering, like, where are you getting John from? It doesn't say John's name. That's where we're getting John's name from. Notice John's response to this news, to their findings in verse 8 and 9. Then the other disciple, that is John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And notice this. He saw and believed. For as yet they had not understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They had heard Jesus telling of what he was going to do. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the promises. They knew the proclamations. They heard Jesus tell them even in detail, even over the last few hours. But yet they couldn't quite put the dots together. They didn't quite understand what the death and resurrection quite might mean. And yet as John stands here looking at this place where Jesus should be and all he sees are the burial cloths of Christ yet no Jesus he sees and he believes see everything Jesus had taught about his resurrection had unfolded before their eyes and suddenly their fear gives way to hope that Jesus is alive how do they respond Look at verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. They immediately go back to tell the others the good news. What about us? What do we do with this good news? How do we respond to the fact that the tomb is empty? Because in case you missed it, the tomb is still empty. How do we respond to those who have trusted Jesus, who have believed that he has come, that he has died, that he was raised? How do we respond to this good news? The tomb is empty. And as the disciples make it back, we see that they're visited, right? Not just the disciples, but Mary Magdalene as well. As we continue on, we see in verses 11 and following this. It says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now, what we see here is pretty clear that Mary had made her way back to the tomb as well. They, remember, they went back to tell Peter and John. And as she apparently was a little slower getting back, she makes it back. And she is absolutely distraught. She is weeping bitterly. Her Lord is dead. Their friend is gone. And the body has now been taken. A lot of people try to say that you know, she would have known because they would have passed on the road, her and Peter and John. But 
That just doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Because John, he sees and he believes and they leave to go tell the good news. So you could imagine that if they run up with Mary Magdalene on the road, they would have told her the good news and she would not have come to weep bitterly. She would have come to rejoice. So it's believed they would have taken some sort of different path. But she makes it and she's completely distraught because of the things that are taking place. But in the midst of her anguish, look at verses 12. It says, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. In the midst of her anguish, in the midst of her pain, she, she gazes in and she sees something absolutely amazing. She sees two angels sitting on either side of the place where Jesus had been laying, and they're dressed in white. I love what we started in our call to worship with. Matthew's account says they appeared like lightning. And a lot could be made out of their appearance. The white garments, their appearance was really just a sign of holiness. It was a sign of joy. It was a picture of victory. It was a proclamation of triumph and they turned their attention to Mary and they said why are you weeping now what's really interesting is they're not asking her in such a way to kind of degrade her as to the point of why don't you have faith but rather to make a proclamation that she should be filled with great joy because he is not here he is alive That her mourning should be turned to rejoicing. It's also pretty interesting that she's not even phased by the fact that there are two angels in her presence. She is so broken, so overcome with mourning that she doesn't even realize she's seeing two angels and talking to two angels. They're trying to encourage her. There's no time for weeping. He is not here, for he is risen. And if the appearance of the two angels declaring this encouragement to her isn't enough, look what we see in verses 14 and following. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Now, apparently, as the angels are talking to her, something gets their attention. She's talking to angels, but she stops and she turns. So maybe just the pure bright blaze of God's glory shining through Jesus got her attention. Maybe it, were, it, were the, it was the angels acknowledging. Maybe it could have even been that at, at his coming in, they just fall down and worship and they know, she knows that something has come in and she turns around. But whatever the case, she sees Jesus standing there. And at first she doesn't recognize him. 
And so he asked the same exact question that the angels do. Woman, why are you weeping? Except he adds one more thing. Not only does he ask her why she is weeping, but he says, whom are you seeking? He does not say, what are you seeking? As in some dead body, but whom are you seeking? And she mistakes Jesus for the gardener and she begins to question him. Where have you taken the body? Are, are you the one that's behind this? Why, why did you do this? Please tell me where the body of my Lord is so I can go get him. And again, I want you to look again at verse 16. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And all of a sudden she knows. There's no more questioning if this is the gardener. She seeks. She believes. And she cries out, teacher. What an awesome reality. Not only for Mary, but for you and me. That it's Jesus and Jesus alone that can save us. And no matter who we are or what we've done, when he calls our name, we believe. She calls, he calls her by name and she believes. Earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he tells them, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and they know me and I know them. At the moment that he called her name, she knew. All the doubt was gone. My Lord, my Savior, my teacher, He is here and He has called me by name. Maybe we need to ask the question this morning. Have you heard the voice of the Good Shepherd? Has He called you by name? If so, it's time to follow Him. You know, this morning, people are gathered all across this community and churches to celebrate Easter. Some of them to worship the resurrected Savior. Some just because it's Easter. Some because family wanted them to be there. Friends invited them to go. But do you know that there are a lot of people who were not gathered to worship the resurrection of Jesus this morning? And the good news of Jesus and him being alive hasn't come to us so we could gather and just stay. I heard a preacher say recently, we, the gospel came, the good news came to us so it could be going to someone else. How will we respond to the reality that Jesus is alive? How does Mary respond? Look at verse 17. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascended to the Father, and your Father to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She goes. Peter and John, the, the 
two of the three pillars of the, the disciples. So we, there were 12 disciples, but there was this smaller group, Peter, James, and John. And of them, Peter and John make it to the tomb, and they're, they're broken, and they're distraught because their Lord has just given his life. And you can imagine the state that Peter was in because he had just denied his Lord. And they show up and they realize all that he has told us has come to be. He is not here for he has risen and they immediately go to tell others. And Mary Magdalene, one of the closest followers of Jesus, upon hearing the good news, seeing Jesus with her eyes, responds in the same way. As she runs and she announced to the disciples, she declares to the disciples, I have seen him. She goes to tell the good news that Jesus is alive. But he doesn't only appear to Mary. Going on in verses 19 and following, we read this. That on the evening of the, that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. I want to stop right there for a second. It was typical that they would gather together. They fellowship. They loved each other. They spent time together. And after these events, they were gathered together in this room, doors locked, because they just experienced the death of their Lord. And they knew that there was imminent danger for them as well. I mean, if they were willing to kill Jesus, then they were willing to kill Jesus' followers. And so they're all gathered in this room, doors locked, and we pick it up. In the latter half of verse 19. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I want you to try to visualize the situation, right? Especially if you're Peter, John, or Mary Magdalene at this point. You have been to the tomb. You have seen that it was empty. You have witnessed the angel's declaration that he is not here. Mary Magdalene has talked to Jesus. And they go back home to announce to their brothers and their sisters that, that he is not there. He is risen. He is alive. I have seen the Lord. We are locking the doors for the moment. And we are just going to rejoice in what we're seeing. And we're going to talk about what we're seeing. And I'm sure there's a lot of doubt with those who are gathered. And in the midst of a locked room, Jesus appears to them. And he says, peace be with you. And at the sight of Jesus, notice what it said. They were glad. They were glad when they saw the Lord. They have now seen their Lord. They have gazed upon his wounds. And upon his entering into that room, he really gives them a twofold message. First, he says, peace be with you. Why? They probably thought they had seen a ghost. And so he's assuring them that it is him. He is here. He shows them his scars. He, he shows them his hands and his feet. 
But he's also declaring them that peace, that he has accomplished the mission of redemption, that he has come to fulfill the mission of God and it is done. That is why on the cross, on Good Friday, he says it is finished. He had accomplished the work he was set apart to do. Remember Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, and the wages of that sin is death. But again, that good word, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin and the, the ways that we once walked. We were by nature children of wrath. But Ephesians 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy... Love, great love that he has loved us, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He tells them peace. This is the very reason I came. All the other things pale in comparison to this. Like we want to make much about a lot of little things, right? That he fed 5,000, that he fed 4,000, that he turned water into wine, that he healed a leper, that he done all of these things. And we want to focus on all of those. But those pale in comparison to this great miracle that Jesus is alive, dead, three days. There's a lot of significance to that too. Culturally, they knew after someone was dead for three days, they were dead. Rigor mortis had begun to set in. They knew that some kind of sleep had passed. Three days gone. Jesus, not in the tomb, standing in their midst in a locked room. There's also something pretty powerful that we see here. He shows them his hands. He shows them his feet. He shows them his side. Why? He just came into a locked room without opening a door or a window. He is proving that he's not there in spirit, that he is sovereign over all things. And he is physically standing there in their midst, the resurrected Savior. But that's not the end of his message. Look at verse 21. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So, what was the twofold message? Peace be with you. I have accomplished everything that was set apart from before time ever began for me to accomplish. It is finished. Now go. The Father sent me to accomplish a mission. Now I am sending you. Go. And as he had promised them earlier, he would send them out, but he would not leave them alone. He was giving them an unaccomplishable task on their own. So he gives the Holy Spirit to them so that they could go. Jesus has called them to a great task and he has equipped them with his spirit to press on. Jesus has called us to a great task and he has given us his spirit so that we could press on. This message of Jesus wasn't only meant for the disciples who were gathered in that room. It's meant for every single one of us. Every one of his children have been set apart for the mission of God. We have been commissioned by God to go out with the good news. That is the good news of the gospel that Jesus is alive and it is in fact good news 
Jesus doesn't save us so we could stay locked in a room because they didn't stay locked in that room, did they? They would eventually come out of that room and Jesus would turn the world upside down with 12 men who saw him, who believed him, and who were ready to go to war, even unto death. But he doesn't stop with that meeting, does he? Because he goes on to assure the doubter. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and I place my hand into his side, I will not believe. Makes a lot of sense, right? He was not in that room. Maybe he's thinking they've got like some post-traumatic stress stuff happening. People don't just come out of the grave. People don't just appear in a locked room. People don't just recover from that type of beating and that type of death. I'm not quite sure, guys. You may be losing it. And so unless I see and I touch, I'm not going to believe. So eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus turns his attention to Thomas and he tells Thomas to do exactly what Thomas said he needed to do in order to believe. Almost verbatim. You wanted to put your finger in my nails, in my hole, in the hole of my hand? Here it is. Do it. You wanted to place your hand in the, in the spear hole in my side? Here it is. Now believe. Again. Proving that this isn't just some spiritual manifestation of Jesus. He is there. In their midst. Alive. Scarred. But alive. And what does Thomas do? Verse 28. Thomas answered him. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. That day, Jesus grace, graciously assured Thomas' faith. But there are many, just like Thomas, who have doubts. I'm not so sure about some guy who was born in a manger in a stable, who was announced by angels, who lived a perfect life. That's not even possible. And he died, and now he's not dead anymore. That's a little far-fetched. 
right? C.S. Lewis said to believe in Jesus or the whole story of Jesus, you're either to proclaim the belief of Jesus, you're either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. No, you're not. He is. He's either, I'll get it right in a minute. This is what happens when I don't write stuff down. That Jesus, in the message of Jesus, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. It's absolutely a ludicrous story. But it's true. He's not a liar. He's certainly not a lunatic. And he is very much Lord. And Thomas falls on his face and he begins to declare, my Lord and my God. And I don't doubt that there are some of you who doubt this. Friends, we may not have a physical Jesus standing in this room right now showing us his scars, showing us his pierced hands and feet and side. But what we do have is his word. It is true. It is without error. It is inspired by God. And it is sufficient. And it declares that Jesus is very God, a very God. It declares that Jesus was born for one particular mission, to glorify God by redeeming his people. It declares that Jesus did live a sinless, perfect life. It declares that Jesus did die a very physical, painful, brutal, humiliating death. And it declares that Jesus is alive. We have all the proof we need. And the reality is, is that God's word is truth and it declares that Jesus is God's son and his death fulfills the word. And maybe you're saying, yeah, but you're going based off one book, right? I mean, eh. like more than likely, there were some religious people way back who like crafted the story. They crafted the Bible. Let's debunk that a little bit. This might cause me to go over time. This was not planned. But you should be used to it by now. The Bible was written 66 individual books by over 40 authors. Three continents. Asia, Africa, Europe. Three primary languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. Over a period of 1,600 years. And I love what Vody Bauckham says. He says, man, the CIA couldn't pull it off. This is not a fable. This is not a fairy tale. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now, this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes this in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with what? The scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's true, folks. Jesus is alive. So have faith in him. Believe in him. And know this, that the message is extremely clear. On January 5th, 2017, we began our journey through the Gospel of John. 
And we clearly stated from day one what the intended and clear purpose of the gospel of John was. Chapter 20, verse 31. So that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is the Christ. That he is God incarnate. That means that he is God in the flesh. He's not just some good teacher. He's not just another prophet. He's not just a good example. He is God. He is true God of true God. And today you have heard the good news that he is not dead. That he is alive. And you have been told that so you may believe. Again, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Because you might be saying, well, we just read Matthew's story and, and John's is quite different. John leaves out a lot of details. Exactly. That's what he's saying. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, what I actually wrote to you, are written with one intended purpose, so that you may believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So will you trust Him today? Will you believe that it's no longer going to be a fable for you? It's not just some fairy tale. It's not some fictional book we pick up and read and, and see an interesting story. No, it is true. You know, there's more evidence that the Bible is true than all the other things that we hold so tightly to. Like we lift like Homer and, and the Iliad. We lift those things and we're like, man, those things are great. There is far more evidence that the Bible is in fact true than the, that Homer even existed. Do you know that? You know, there's more evidence that the Bible is true then William Shakespeare wrote all of those great works that are attributed to him. And yet we look at the scripture and we look at the story of Jesus and we just throw it to the side. And John says, no, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the truth is this, that Jesus has given his life to save you from sin. Will you surrender to him today? Paul writes in Romans 10, 9, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Trusting in Jesus for salvation doesn't end there, though. Remember, he doesn't save us for us. He doesn't save us so we could stay in this room. Look what he says at the very end. I'll read all of 31 just again, again, just so you can understand the full context. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and this, that by believing, you may have life in His name. So I want to encourage you today to come to Him, to call on Him, to trust in Him, to surrender to Him, and be saved. And you don't stop there. That you go on and you live for his glory all the days of your life. That you tell the good news that Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Our Father, how great and mighty is our God. That he would set apart this plan to redeem his people through the crushing of his son. And through the faithfully lifting him up again. 
God, what a glorious day that we know that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Father, for those here today who have never truly trusted in Jesus, I pray, God, that today they will. That they will truly taste and see that the Lord is good. That they will see that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, and their lives can be absolutely redeemed by the blood of Christ. So may they trust in you today. And for the many of us who are Christians, but we're just struggling in the everyday following and pursuing of you, may we be encouraged to repent of that sin and pursue you with everything we have, that we will live by grace and live for glory, your glory, that we would tell the good news all the days of our life, even unto death, that Jesus is alive. Father, be honored and glorified in our time. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.